0: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of nutshell politics my name is justin kinney and i will be your ruggedly handsome host today as we talk about a fascinating topic of the complex and sometimes problematic relationship between terrorist organizations and the mainstream media so let's go ahead and dive in so when we talk terrorism one of the goals of terror by definition is to frighten, right? Through fear, they ultimately want to control people through fear. They want to shock, uh, and so one of the goals is to attract attention, to attract publicity. Terrorists ultimately are playing to an audience. And when we're talking like true terrorism, usually what's happening here is the actual targets themselves of the terrorism, the victims of it, are not targeted because of who they are specifically, but they're largely symbolic of something greater. In other words, terrorists. Are not just going after people that have personally wronged them, that's more of a personal motive, not a political terrorism motive, but terrorists are playing to some sort of broader audience through these victims. So they may represent something larger, some sort of larger religious organization or the West or representing government or broader society, but it's mostly that these Victims are symbolic of something else. And so terrorists ultimately are playing to an audience, something greater than what their typical attack is. And what this means is that terrorists ultimately are trying to manipulate and exploit the media as part of some sort of propaganda movement as well. They want their attacks to be broadcast, they want their attacks to be seen around the world so that they can scare not just the people in the local vicinity, but also people around the world. And to an extent, this has worked. I mean, we talk about uh, terrorism here in the United States, people are much more likely to think that they're going to be the victims of terror, even though that's widely unlikely. I mean, outside of 9-11, which obviously was, was terrible and horrific and all this stuff, outside of that, there have been remarkably few victims of terrorism in the United States. In fact, you're much more likely to be in a car accident and be killed that way than you are by terrorists. And yet, the concept of terrorism is inherently more scary to us than driving in a car. We do that all the time. And so terrorists are hoping to utilize that to scare us, to, to frighten us. And one way they do this is through media. And modern news media is kind of the principal conduit for information uh, here in the United States, but also worldwide. Because without media coverage, the impact of terrorist attacks is minimized potentially even wasted. If you have some sort of larger symbolic goal of scaring a broader population and nobody hears about your attack, you know that's almost a wasted attack. You may scare in the local vicinity, but you don't have that broader connection to a wider audience. And so the greater the audience a terrorist group can get on a global scale, the more political leverage that they have and they will gain to affect any sort of political change in the country, but also in their region and also worldwide. So this relationship has gotten a little bit tricky because when we look at it from the media's perspective, right, the media is driven by things like ratings. They're trying to cover huge news stories, things that people should know but would also want to know. And media has moved actually from reporting news over the years to, I don't want to say entertainment news necessarily, but we have seen a rise in that as well with things like the Colbert Report, Daily Show, and some of these like infotainment-type shows. And so the media has this kind of incentive on their end to show terrorist attacks, because terrorism is inherently dramatic. It... Brings in viewers, it ups their ratings because people want to see drama. Uh, It's harder to draw viewers when you have lots of competition out there, and we're seeing more and more competition on the news front with kind of local groups popping up, smaller organizations, and social media, which we'll talk about kind of at the end of the episode. But media organizations then have this incentive to show drama, so they tend to show terrorist attacks, they tend to show conflict. We're actually seeing kind of a move toward more drama and conflict in news media There's that we're actually kind of seeing a shift in what's being covered towards conflict because people are much more likely to want to watch news if it's covering a war somewhere or a terrorist attack than they are about some sort of boring trade deal that took place between you know world leaders in some far-flung place that you can't actually see what's actually happening. You just hear the report about it. But having images, having video of conflict is much more riveting to the viewer. And so media organizations have this incentive to show more and more of this. And this has created almost a a symbiotic, very strange relationship between terrorist groups and the media because the relationship here is very complex and many of the violent attacks that we see today are actually done in such a way that they're, they're thought of with media coverage in mind how are we going to maximize the media coverage of this because they're trying to again target not just the victims themselves but they're targeting millions of people the shocked spectators the bystanders across the globe and because the media has this pressure to attract audiences and viewers this creates a huge temptation for them to focus on the violent and the focus on the sensational and the dramatic and to be the first to report such news. And so this presents some ethical dilemmas in how media organizations should cover terrorist attacks. And we're seeing this as a as an increasing dilemma, I guess you should say, among those in, in the media, journalists and reporters and that sort of thing. And just as, as one example of this, back in 1985, there was a hijacking of a TWA flight by some Shia terrorists from Lebanon, and it created a 17-day hostage hostage situation, uh, and the mainstream media broadcast something like 30 news segments per day on the situation. We're talking, again, this is the mid-80s, so ABC, NBC, and CBS were kind of the big three, And what happened is the stations kept trying to one-up each other, to try to find or, in some cases, to try to create news. And this kind of validated terrorism as a tactic. It increased uh, domestic pressure, uh, driven by this kind of media craze, and it pushed the Reagan administration at the time to encourage Israel to give in to the demands and release some of the, the terrorists from Israeli prisons, which is what one of the goals of this Lebanese group was. And so the media in this particular case in the mid-80s moved from reporting news to actively helping determine policy. It actually increased the domestic pressure of the people in the United States to put pressure on Reagan, to put pressure on Israel, to change their policy and release prisoners. And so coverage of these type of events really complicates and can actually undermine government efforts at times. And this is no mistake. I mean, terrorists are using U.S. based networks in particular, but also global networks to their own advantage. It's part of their PR campaign. Uh, They have spin doctors. I mean, there's actually people in terrorist organizations who are media specialists, who have degrees in media relations, who are trying to get on air to air their message or to plan their attacks in a way that will maximize the coverage. Now, this relationship is something that really has only cropped up in recent years, but it goes back to probably the mid-1800s. Obviously, terrorism goes back millennia, but in terms of modern terrorism, it really didn't start until the late 1800s. And part of this was there were a couple things that took place that kind of created this relationship. And it's actually reached a point now where the media is actually being blamed as serving as, quote, apologists for terrorists because they cover it so readily and so eagerly at times to help their own cause that it actually plays right into terrorist hands. And so there's really two big, shall we say... Technological advances that have really pushed this relationship. The first was back in the early 1800s was the printing press. It's actually invented in 19, or sorry, 1830, and it kind of became you know, mass circulation. Newspapers became a big deal, and within about 50 years, the newspaper had become this kind of full-fledged business operation. This is where we really start to see media become a, an entity, and we saw this really taken advantage of in the late 1800s in some of those very first modern terrorist groups. In particular, a group called the Narodnaya Volya uh, If you've been paying attention to this podcast, you know I've actually covered them, talked about them. They're a fascinating group of Russian constitutionalists who are all about bringing the government to its knees and putting the people in power. They were anarchists. And they actually played to newspaper journalists to try to get their attacks covered. The other thing, and this was really where it took off, took place in the 1960s. And this was where we started to see the, in terms of terrorism, we started to see terrorism take on an international flavor. The birth of international terror was in 1968, when Palestinian terrorists started to hijack planes across Europe. But also in this time period, what took place, there were actually a couple big technological advances, the cam, which is a portable video camera, a time-based corrector, which converted video into an output that could be broadcast right away, led to real-time reporting, etc. But the big thing that took place here is the U.S. launched the very first television satellite. And what happened is almost overnight in the next few years, the U.S. becomes the number one terror target in the world. The U.S. was not a target, primarily speaking, prior to this, but we launch a media satellite, and all of a sudden, overnight, we become targets. And that's because terrorists then know attacks on Americans will be covered on a much more global and real-time scale than they would have otherwise. And so we see this move towards real-time reporting in news media, and this kind of competition between news organizations to scoop one another, to get the story before the others. We see a shift from kind of hard news to feature stories, get exclusive interviews, any sort of little minor trivial evidence that comes to light. Every little detail gets dissected. And this presents unparalleled opportunities for publicity, for exposure within the U.S. media conglomerate, which is extensive and growing you know, by the year at this point. And there was a, a case, one of these hijackings by Palestinian terrorists. In Europe, hostage takers actually started paying virtually no attention to any sort of non-American, non-television journalists. And so this kind of human drama, human interest stories that are kind of showcasing grief, conflict, anguish of victims, families, all these things started driving media coverage. And in fact, we actually had, I don't know if you guys know this, but the television show Nightline, which is so popular, has been in the past especially, completely grew out of this need to report new information from Tehran and Iran during another hostage crisis in 1979, 1980. And so we had this huge television show that became a massive deal whose entire purpose originally was to report A hostage crisis. And of course, nowadays, there's a lot more than the mainstream media. We also have all these upstart channels, satellite, cable, internet, social media, all of these things that drive more and more competition, that drive the media to seek out more and more of this drama. And there's this, become this emphasis on entertainment or infotainment over good reporting because they have to keep viewership high in order to compete. Terrorism itself is inherently dramatic. There's a lot of human interest. It often has long lasting duration or, or effects. And so the things that get overly simplified, very narrowly focused and news media focuses very heavily on these groups and it provides this kind of weird, almost toxic relationship between terrorist groups and the media. And so there have been a couple quotes over the years about this. Uh, Margaret Thatcher once said that the oxygen of publicity is something that, on which terrorists depend. And Benjamin Netanyahu, who's prime minister of Israel, said, unreported terrorist attacks would be like the proverbial tree falling in the silent forest. And the idea here is that if you starve terrorists of their publicity, their influence and frequency would diminish over time. And so this has created some, some questions as to what the Ethical thing to do is for the for media organizations. You know this is almost a symbiotic relationship between the two, and the role of quote unquote the old media, which is anything not social media, mostly film, radio, television, in kind of countering terrorism and how they tackle it, has really not been sufficiently addressed there are a lot of people out there who are thinking about it who are talking about it but we really haven't come to any sort of good conclusion because while terrorist organizations are certainly not created by the media uh the media isn't promoting terrorism in any in any sort of way I don't mean to suggest that but once terrorism kind of gets going that relationship between terrorism and the media terrorist groups and the media organizations the mainstream media in particular becomes kind of symbiotic where each benefits the other and they become almost interlocked in this strange i guess I said, toxic relationship that hinges on their interests being tied to one another you know the media has this drive that's almost insatiable to supply content that will drive viewership and raise their ratings. But at the same time, terrorist groups need publicity. They need media in order for their strategies to work. Media organizations should not be accused of creating or promoting, but there is this strange relationship where there's almost a causal effect where they almost play off of one another. And it's, it's accidental. It's entirely accidental. I, I don't mean to suggest anything otherwise, but it does raise a lot of questions as to the ethical concerns that a media organization really has and what responsibility do they have in both broadcasting these events that people should know about, people should know these things are happening, but where do they draw the line in providing that but not giving the terrorists what they want as well. The platform that media provides for groups across the world, not just extremist groups or radicalists or terrorists or anything like that, but the platform that media provides is huge. I mean, it's something we see politicians do. We see organizations do it. uh, We see social movements, interest groups use it. It's a way to broadcast and amplify your message to a much wider audience than you ever could have. And without this platform, any sort of message that you want out there would struggle to reach beyond its very immediate locale and therefore would remain unknown or minimized to anyone outside of that area. And there's a famous terrorist studies expert by the name of Bruce Hoffman. He's the one we usually get the definition of terror from. If you listen to an episode I did uh, it's been months ago now about kind of what terrorism is, Bruce Hoffman talks about this impact of the of terrorist organizations on media. And he says, without the media's coverage, the act's impact is arguably wasted, remaining narrowly confined to the immediate victims of the attack rather than reaching the wider target audience at whom the terrorist violence is actually aimed, end quote. And so in this increasingly competitive, overly crowded field of media, particularly in a society like in the West where we're very driven by attention, you know, we're an attention economy, an attention-based society, you have more and more things that fight for attention. Because attention is ultimately a scarce resource. If you pay attention to one thing, you can't physically pay attention to anything else. It becomes a scarce resource. And so competition then increases as that resource becomes more and more scarce. And in Western society, we have more and more things drawing that attention. So it's becoming a scarce resource. So media then has this incentive or this problem where they have to up their attraction to potential viewers. Now, this becomes an important question because is this relationship between terrorism and the media actually affecting public opinion and government decision-making. If it's affecting public opinion and government decision-making in any sort of manner that favors or assists the terrorists, then you have a problem because that means the media is actively favoring or assisting terrorist groups. Uh, Again, not intentionally, but as as kind of a secondary byproduct. Now, there has been a couple studies on this. They are a little shaky. I don't mean to suggest that these are ironclad, but there has been very little evidence uh, the, the rise in media coverage has made public attitude favorable to terrorists or to terrorist causes. Right? There was a, a 1989 study that showed that uh, despite heightened coverage, again, we're going back you know, 30 years, but despite heightened coverage, public approval for terrorists was still effectively zero. But just because that doesn't raise sympathy for terrorists does not necessarily mean that they aren't still impacting things. Back in 1986, there was a man by the name of Abu Abbas. He was interviewed on NBC Nightly News. The thing is, he was actually a leader for a group called the Palestinian Liberation Front, the PLF. And at the time of the interview, there was actually a $250,000 reward for his capture by the U.S. State Department. He was involved in a cruise ship hijacking and murder. And the U.S. State Department put out a quarter of a million dollar reward. And NBC puts his interview with him in prime time. And Abbas wanted this too. I mean, this turned him into a, a media star broadcasting his message. It, it made him look like more of a statesman instead of a murderer. And this is probably the most famous case of this happening. But we've seen this in other cases too where we see extremists. I don't want to say interviewed probably isn't the right word. Although this one definitely was but put into a media spotlight of sorts, turned into media stars in this kind of media circus. And even though terrorists getting more publicity and more notoriety doesn't seem to change public opinion of them in terms of making it more favorable, there are a couple areas that we have seen a clear causal relationship between terrorism and either public opinion or the government decision-making. First is this perception of personal risk. I've mentioned this. Polls on the public here in the West show that about 14% of people think it's likely that they will be a victim of terrorism at some point in their life. 14%. But in reality, fewer than 1 in 100,000 people will ever be a victim of terrorism here. It's massively disproportionate to what the actual numbers are. But this kind of perception of personal risk from terrorism affects the way that we view it. And it actually has affected our, our willingness to travel as well. Foreign travel plummets in the wake of terrorist attacks. It's not that travel itself plummets, but we see a shift away from international travel to domestic travel. And whenever there are terrorist attacks, economies and countries that depend on tourism suffer. Countries like Italy and Greece see their profits from tourism drop off dramatically after terrorist attacks. But the probably more important impact that the media has on terrorism and the relationship there and how that affects is on the government response to it. Because the way that the media covers terrorist attacks transforms the way in which our leaders are making decisions. And I have a couple examples of this. But CNN's round-the-clock news, for instance, which is essentially is you know real-time, 24-7 stories from around the world, has actually led the media to being accused, per se, of being ahead of government intel services on occasion, because they're constantly on the search for something in the immediate in the moment. And it becomes not just an opinion shaper then, but actually a policy driver. Because TV presenters will define the range of options for government, they can interpret public reaction, they can analyze potential re- repercussions, they have experts come on to talk about things. And this puts pressure on the government. This pressures the government to make statements very, very rapidly without necessarily having the necessary time to analyze all the causal factors and potential effects, uh, without having time to reach carefully thought out decisions. There's this need that's driven by media coverage to have a policy automatically for everything before it happens and to respond before there's time to ever evaluate it. And just the, the best example of this is there was a, a situation in Somalia back in 1994 uh, with the president at the time, Bill Clinton. And they took some polls of people and they controlled for who watched television broadcasts. And what they found is that 49% of those who watched the television broadcast of this, uh, there was a a captured U.S. pilot who was kind of being paraded through the streets by by extremists, and 49% who watched favored withdrawal from Somalia, and 33% who didn't watch did. So that's an extra 16 percentage points who favored withdrawal from Somalia after watching a television broadcast that changed public opinion. And Bill Clinton is famously known as being a president who was very tied to public opinion. He made decisions often based on what the public wanted. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but he was known for being very concerned with what the public wanted. I mean, even going into Somalia, right, he stormed into a decision that didn't reflect public opinion, and then he was forced to back out of it. And this, the televised components of the story actively changed what the public thought and put pressure on Clinton to do things that may or may not have been the best decision um, because he was forced into those decisions without any sort of full-scale analysis of the situation. Another example of this, we use a a more domestic homegrown terrorist, is Ted Kaczynski, the the famous Unabomber. He's famous for uh, killing three people, he wounded I think 20 some odd back in 1995 with homemade bombs that he sent via the mail. And he actually promised to halt his campaign if the New York Times or the Washington Post printed his kind of manifesto. He'd written like this 35,000 word rant against technology and modernity and all these things that he thought were going wrong. And so he was trying to use the media and try to manipulate the media into broadcasting his message by promising that he would cut back on some of his attacks. Now, to put the media in a little bit better light, it was actually through this publicity that he was eventually caught. And so the media actually did play a role in catching the Unabomber. But this was another example of a domestic case where a terrorist tried to manipulate the media and use the media coverage. And so we're seeing this take place around the world at a scale that is increasing drastically. Because terrorism is a form of communication. People talk about it in terms of the violence, and that's absolutely what it is. But terrorism at its core is more about communication. They're trying to spread their message, they're trying to get people on their side, they're trying to convince governments to change policy, they're trying to effectively address grievances and get concessions. And so, terrorism. Terrorist groups, I should say, have ex- tried to exploit the media. And actually, I would say they've succeeded in many cases. Because without media coverage in this kind of age of mass communication, there are a lot of tactical and strategic purposes to their attacks. And it actually may end up losing meaning if they don't get the coverage. And this raises a lot of questions as to how media coverage should cover terrorist attacks. And you know, probably the best way, and this is getting into more of my opinion than anything factual or scientific out there, but the press likes to report terrorist attacks. And they should. I mean, people shouldn't absolutely know what's going out there, going on out there in the world. If we don't, I think we lose a lot of perspective. Um, we get kind of in our own little bubbles. But reporting the story of what's happening while omitting the propaganda message that the terrorists are hoping to, to push along with the, the attack and the violence, I think would probably be a, a good way to look at it. Obviously, you can't take out the message entirely. But if you can reduce terrorism to more about crime and the attack without the, the ideological message behind it. I mean, that that's where I think media coverage should be focusing and turning towards, at least on their mainstream platforms. It doesn't mean they don't have to tell people what, what the attacks are about, anything but if they can minimize that spread of ideology and spread of message that takes away one of the big reasons that terrorist attacks even engage in this this is partly why we've seen terrorism take off as well i mean there was terrorism as i've mentioned for millennia but it really didn't kick off in any sort of big way until the late 1800s and it hasn't taken off or it's taken off drastically in just the last 20 to 30 years as well Correlating quite heavily with the rise in mass media. So, if we could find some way to take away one of those reasons for them doing these attacks and trying to manipulate and exploit the media as part of their you know, propaganda war that's taking place, that would be a great thing. And so, I think the mass media really needs to work harder at finding ways or finding um, means of self restraint that are appropriate and don't benefit the terrorists, but still effective in getting messages out to the people about what's actually going on in the world. Because this is by no means, on my part, a call for less information. Journalism has this kind of obligation to provide information to the public. And audiences have a right to access what's going on out there. We we have a right to know, especially if it might affect our own safety someday if we're being targeted. But the way that these things are frequently covered, kind of 24-7, nonstop, constant breaking alerts, in the moment, real time, and frequently with the same news being repeated over and over and over again, that almost creates more fear. And there was actually a big survey done of 20,000 people, I think it was done of the youth, just like two years ago. And they found that 83%, so four out of every five, say that terrorism makes them scared or fearful for the future of the world. And this was a higher percentage than any other factor, including war, income inequality, climate change, and a dozen other things that they measured as well. Terrorism topped that list. And so, the extent that the coverage is playing into the interests of the terrorist becomes a real concern. And further, terrorists have started to recognize, too, that who their victims are plays a role in the amount of coverage, right? So, most attention on Western media has been paid to attacks in Western countries or against Western victims, despite something like 96% of terrorists are victims of terrorists, being Africa, the Middle East, or Southeast Asia. And so we are actually starting to see a bit of a shift. And it's because the media covers these things in such a way, we're actually seeing Americans become more and more targets. Now, there are other reasons for that as well. Americans are frequently seen as uh, instigators. We've gone into other countries. We're seen as uh, intervening in places where we don't necessarily need to be. And so there are other reasons that drive some of this as well. But a large part of the reason that Americans have become targets is because... American media covers that at much higher rates, and so while the media can cover some of the dimensions of terrorism—you know, who commits it, who's sponsoring it, where it was, who the victims are—help bring perpetrators to justice. All of these things, there are maybe ways of they like say they may not be able to prevent terrorism, but they can control the reaction to it, not allowing it to drive fear, honoring the victims, highlighting you know genuine discussion and genuine dialogue about the alternatives to terrorism, not allowing it to to drive us into our holes and to living lives in fear, you know, which also can then drive hatred. It drives a lot of bigotry as well. And so the media needs to find a way to play a stronger role in preventing terrorism from kind of dismantling society because it's, it generates this fear and exacerbates it because they're playing to drama and playing to viewers. Uh, now we're going to go ahead and take, uh, like I said, a 60-second break. I did this last episode as well, but I'll be back on the other side, and we're going to do a, a probably a shorter section, but talk about kind of new media and the way terrorism has started to embrace media on their own with things like social media and their own media enterprises as well. So hang on for just about a minute, and I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that short break. I am glad you guys stuck with me, and we are back to talking about media and terrorism. Now, before the break, we talked about kind of what's called old media, which is mainstream media, newspapers, television, that sort of thing. But I wanted to take a few minutes and talk about what's called the new media, uh, which would be mostly social media. Because at the end of the day, I kind of mentioned this prior to the, to the break, but violence for terrorist groups is a form of communication. It's a you know, violent act. It's specifically designed to attract attention, to communicate their message. And before the break, we kind of discussed how terrorism was about getting the publicity they wanted. But what we're seeing is that with the rise of some new technology, in particular social media, the weapons of terrorism have gone beyond guns and bombs and those sorts of things but now have become very high tech they include things the internet computers you know high tech production editing and with the rise of social media there is no longer this need to rely solely on the mainstream media and instead they can actually control the whole production process determining what they show the context the medium they choose the targeted audience all of these things they can control every stage and turn their publicity that they were getting through mainstream media and hoping to manipulate and exploit that way into propaganda and it gives them this kind of ability to disseminate the information that they want which gives them more legitimacy more viability and they can portray themselves however they want to as they start to use their own social media accounts, and in some cases, their own websites, own radio stations, own pamphlets, magazines, journals that they put out. Uh, But before we get into that, just really quickly, when we're talking like propaganda, there are several different reasons people use propaganda right so there's what's called the didactic motivation Uh, that's d-i-d-a-c-t-i-c didactic it's designed basically for education purposes to inform to educate to get support to rally the masses that type of thing but you can also have propaganda for recruitment purposes you can have propaganda that's coercive through threats or fear to try to undermine confidence in the government. It doesn't have to be about, you know, threats from themselves, but they can say, if you don't do this, the government will come after you. Those sorts of things undermine confidence in the government leadership. But then also there's something called auto propaganda. And this is about strengthening morale among your already supporters, strengthening morale, dampening dissent, those type of things. In the past, they had to rely pretty heavily on mainstream media and the few things they did have were kind of clandestine like rebel radio stations some underground flyers and newspapers and then kind of the conventional commercial mass media right and the, those first two I mentioned the radio stations and underground flyers had had inherent limits on effectiveness because they didn't have the widespread audience but the latter was troubling for them as well because they couldn't control the message as well they certainly worked hard to exploit it and they were successful on many occasions but at the end of the day they could not control the way that they were portrayed on tv or on these news stations and news uh, reports and so there's been a few different technological advancements i wanted to talk talk about that kind of broken the stranglehold over mass media the first one was the rise of the internet obviously the internet provides this very rapid real-time very inexpensive exchange of information very quickly and it provides a reach around the world into almost any location that you want and so the speed of information can raise awareness can raise activism mobilize support put pressure on people but more importantly it helps them to circumvent government censorship while also permitting kind of anonymous messaging at virtually no cost and minimal effort and it avoids the filtering of kind of the established media. And so we have seen groups start to utilize the internet in this capacity. Uh, the first group to successfully harness the internet was actually not a group of terrorists, but they were kind of a rebel insurgents called the Zapatistas, They were or the EZLN. Uh, They were down in Mexico, and they used computers to help jumpstart grassroots movements. And they used the internet to appeal to human rights groups, international organizations, to try to join in their struggle against what they saw as a repressive Mexican government. And they would use the internet to do things like bombard the president with emails and faxes and calls and completely lock down the office of the Mexican president. And it was the first time we really saw electronic civil disobedience the internet being used as a weapon they were disrupting phone lines fax lines filling up email inboxes disrupting normal operations obviously this was not a violent way of doing things but it was the first time we saw a group like an insurgent group successfully harness the internet and they actually did manage to get entered into a truce with the mexican government so it worked now moving a little bit more into the violence and terrorism there was a group called LTTE, or the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, or the Tamil Tigers. This is a group in Sri Lanka. They were a secularist group, uh, but they were one of the first ones to establish their own website. They established the website as early as 1995 and spawned several others off of that. But it was a way for them in Sri Lanka to, to present alternative news to what the government news sources were putting out there. And so they linked to news organizations, uh, international groups, news clips. They had press releases. They put photographs. They actually had featured profiles of their fighters, kind of like a, a get-to-know-your-terrorist profile, especially if they had female fighters, and they actually had a pretty large number of female fighters in this group. They put what they called freedom poems, so like artistic Online quizzes. They even sold merchandise. So they really harnessed the power of the internet to help mobilize support, and it actually worked. Um, they successfully managed to undermine the legitimacy of kind of the official news sources throughout Sri Lanka. And while they ultimately, were, this group ultimately was defeated militarily, they were considered one of the most successful uh, suicide terrorist groups in the world. Which, and that's actually a whole topic for another issue, another episode. Uh, but they were a secular group that used suicide terrorism to dramatic effect but today almost all terrorist groups have some sort of website frequently in multiple languages to try to reach multiple people groups you know there's this kind of well designed to appeal to a computer savvy generation terrorist groups have actually been caught trying to specifically target and recruit people who are savvy in media people who have media degrees or computer design degrees these type of things to build these websites. The websites kind of avoid focusing on all the violence, but it's been particularly noteworthy in the Middle East. Uh, virtually, you see this around the world, but one of the first to really do this was Hezbollah. They had a site that allowed commenters from around the world to come in and show their support for the organization for what they were doing. They had a variety of sites that all had different purposes. Some were much more benign. Others were more focused on the violence. Uh, Hezbollah actually even put out a video game, something I think it was called Special Force or something to that effect back in the early 2000s that was designed you could play as the terrorist. Uh, Hamas did something similar. They put interviews and photographs depicting their grievances online, which was designed to try to turn their fighters into more martyrs. Some of that was was not necessarily even true, but they put these photographs up on their site to do that. They translated it into dozens of different languages. And interestingly, too, these also became ways for them to actively solicit support. Especially financial support, material support. They actively, Hamas in particular, actively solicited donations for purchasing everything from rifles to dynamite uh, to training people to developing missiles and mortars and explosives. And they actually start to run these sites now in other nations as well to encourage Muslims in other countries to come and join their fight with Hamas or Hezbollah and some of these groups in the Middle East. And they'll, they'll even on their website provide information about how to leave your job, how to quit your job without raising any red flags. How do you get through customs without arousing suspicion? All of these things were put on these websites to help people leave their, their homes and travel to join these terrorist groups. Now, one of the best, at least up until recently, at using the internet was Al-Qaeda. And they actually had an entire committee within Al-Qaeda dedicated to media and publicity. They had like a whole branch. And it was publishing the kind of the core messages of their groups. And it it was very sophisticated. Actually, their website would bounce from server to server around the world, including a couple servers in the United States in the past as well to keep it from being shut down. And we know this was widely successful as well. The 9-11 commission report from our intel communities found at least four instances where the hijackers of the planes got information from the internet to plan and facilitate their attacks. Things like architectural models, simulation software, uh, programming instructions, recon, uh, support from other members of the organization, all sorts of things like this. And so the internet itself has just become a big deal with building websites Uh, we actually started seeing them now post videos of their attacks online this was started with a group of chechen fighters uh, a handful of years back but now we see this fairly regularly as well Outside of the internet, we also see television having having become a pretty big deal. Terrorists have actually started beginning their own television stations. This is done to counter kind of the mainstream television, allows them to have complete control over the content and context of what's going on. One of the first of these was a group, was a a television station by the group Hezbollah called Al-Manar. It came out in the early 90s, so it's been around almost 30 years, and it had something like... 190 to 200,000 followers of this television station. It actually became one of the most watched stations in the Middle East within a decade of starting. And it wasn't even just directed at supporters, but also targeted Israeli audiences. Particularly, they were trying to target the parents of IDF fighters, uh, IDF being the Israeli Defense Forces. And it was designed to try to put pressure on the Israeli government to withdraw from Lebanon to kind of undercut some of the authority of the official government's reports. And so we see... Kind of these insurgent rebel television stations crop up. But the big thing and this is where I want to focus for the last few minutes of this episode is on social media. Everything from Facebook and Twitter, which are probably the most common, to YouTube and even LinkedIn at times have been utilized by terrorist groups with often highly sophisticated videos using green screens, special effects to broadcast their message and And propaganda, and there was actually a video done by ISIS a handful of years back, where they it was clearly designed with special effects to make their fighters look stronger than they were. Because when you actually started looking at the fighters, all of their fighters were shown to be close to seven feet tall, whereas their victims that they were parading across, like in a line for execution, I think it was, all of their victims were shown to be much shorter, and so it made their fighters seem much stronger and bigger and and um, more more powerful. Obviously, ISIS is not made up of a bunch of seven-foot-tall guys, right? but they designed these special effects, and they use certain angles and cameras and effects to make themselves look a lot stronger, more powerful than they actually were. We've also seen groups use Twitter. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood used Twitter to coordinate the overthrow of the Egyptian government at one point. Almost every terrorist organization in the world now has some sort of Twitter account. I actually studied this now for a living. Uh, pretty much every religious group in the world... Uh, every religious terrorist group in the world and most of the secular groups as well do that Uh, we've seen them utilize that to extensive success and sites like these are used for you know planning attacks, holding meeting, recruiting members. Uh, Al-Shabaab famously live-tweeted commentary of one of their terrorist attacks in Kenya back in 2013. But they also use these accounts to try to humanize themselves, to try to gain sympathy. Uh, they tweet about their successful missions. They tweet about recruitment. But they, they intersperse these with photos of things that we do here in the West, you know, photos of our meals. Uh, there, was a, there was actually an entire ISIS Twitter account for a brief period in time dedicated to cute cat photos. I'm not joking on that. Cute kittens. They showed it was called ISIL Cats, ISIL cats, an entire Twitter account that was dedicated to showing their fighters playing with cats. Unbelievable. But the reason for it was they were trying to humanize themselves to show themselves as being just like you and I. You know, we may do some of these terrible things, but don't focus on that. Let's focus on the fact that we we also like kittens and we also like showing photos of our meals and these type of things. And so they, they kind of commandeer hashtags. They target the groups that are most often on social media, which is the youth, with some of these humanizing effects. Now, Twitter has shut down some of these sites. Not a lot. In most cases, Twitter just doesn't have the capability to shut down the large number of constantly popping up accounts. Uh, there was a study done back in 2014 or so that showed there were something like 45,000 accounts by ISIS supporters online. And that doesn't—that's just ISIS supporters, not just actual members of ISIS too. So there's just not—they just don't have the capability to constantly keep shutting these down. But what we've seen is that our intel community actually doesn't like them to shut them down right away. Our government has actually worked with Twitter to shut accounts down strategically so that they can then track who the first followers of, of new accounts are that pop up, where these new accounts pop up from, how fast they pop up, and if you can track who those first followers are, that helps you get an idea of who the ones in charge of this really are. And so while Twitter has definitely cracked down on the, on the accounts that show the, like, the particularly violent images, the beheadings, and those sorts of things... The ones that just show messaging have actually been utilized by our government. So we're actually now using media against them, using their media against them in the same way that they used our media against us. We're using their accounts against them to help track them as well. We also see them using things like YouTube. They have had YouTube channels pop up. Those are much, much easier to shut down. There's fewer of them. They're harder to create. So that has not been used as extensively, but we have seen that in the past. We've actually, I mentioned even LinkedIn. Uh, the main financier of Hezbollah at one point had his own LinkedIn page. I believe it's now been shut down. But you know, they're, they're trying to use all of these social media to connect to people around the world, in particular to target the people who use social media, the youth they're still in this age of trying to figure out their own identity that's not a bad thing they're finding your own identity is really important but when you're in these kind of age ranges you're very pliable to some of these outside sources of information and it's why if you are a member of the youth. You know, out there listening to this podcast, you need to be very careful where you get your information from because there are a lot of very bad, violent people out there who are looking to target you specifically. If you're not a member of the youth out there and you're an adult, you have kids, or you're just you know, kind of concerned with this, this is a message that you need to get out there because you need to understand that these groups are doing this. And we need to either provide counter messaging or find ways to help the youth find their identity in something a little bit more stable And a little bit more grounded in reality and a much more moral sense of what right and wrong is. Because if we aren't providing these alternative sources, and again, this isn't just in the West, too. One of the reasons they target the youth, they target them in the Middle East as well, because the youth often doesn't have alternatives, especially even economically, they don't have jobs. And so if we can provide alternative ideologies, alternative avenues for the youth to to go down, alternative... Uh, world worldviews. We need to focus on what worldview we're really preaching to our our kids and to the youth out there. They will be influenced, and they are being influenced by a lot of these social media enterprises that are being used by violent radical extremists. And we've seen this used a lot. A lot of times, the, the people who tend to leave their homes and travel back uh, to the Middle East to to join up with these groups are frequently young people. And we've seen this, and not just men either, young women, uh, young girls. There is an epidemic, or there was a few years ago, of what was so-called ISIS brides, which were like 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old girls who would find these messages online, message boards and things, become somewhat enamored with the life of being you know, dangerous and exciting, and they would leave their families, run away from home, and join ISIS, Uh, you know, again, as like 13 to 16 year olds, very young girls, ultimately what happens is they end up being uh, married off to one of the fighters so that they can provide children for the next generation of, of terrorists. And once they get there, a lot of times these young girls realize it's not what they thought it was going to be. But at that point, it's too late. They can't really get out of it. Uh, again, they're they're trapped. And so they were manipulated through social media. And so this is something that terrorist groups, getting back a little bit more on topic, this is something a lot of terrorist groups utilize to circumvent the limitations that the mainstream media has provided. They use mainstream media as much as they could, and they still do. But social media and the ability to create their own stations, their own radio stations, own TV, etc., have allowed them to kind of circumvent the limitations that a mainstream media organization would put on them because now they can control the way that they're portrayed, the way that their attacks are presented, the way that their messaging is put out there and put context and propaganda in a way that they couldn't before. And so this weird, almost symbiotic relationship between the mainstream media and terrorist groups is is not going away. It's it's changing with the advent of new technology. And so media organizations now have just as much, if not more, of a responsibility to really, really be careful how they're presenting some of these extremists and their ideology and their messaging and the news of what's going on out there. And I, I would argue that you have a greater responsibility now, more than ever in this age of more division and more competition for attention to really think about the ethical considerations of what and how they're covering these these events and these groups. But with that, we're going to go ahead and shut things down today. I hope that was an interesting episode for you guys. If you enjoyed that, please hit that subscribe button or leave me a review on this podcast uh, on whatever platform you're using, iTunes or Spotify or whatever. Please leave me that review. Hit that subscribe button. If you're interested in following me, you can always find me on Twitter at R underscore Kinney. That's K-I-N-N-E-Y. Follow me there. I'd be happy to continue this conversation or any other. You can also find me on Facebook at J. Robert Kinney. I write under a different name for my fiction novels. So you can find me there. I also have two books you can find on Amazon called Precipice and Splintered State find those on Amazon, check them out if you're interested in that. Uh, If you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast or advertising on the podcast, please hit me up, get in contact. I would love to talk with you more about that possibility. And finally, just remember if you have any topics you would like for me to cover on this show in future episodes, please let me know what those are. I'd be happy to put those into the rotation and and cover some things that you guys really want to hear about. But with that, we're going to go ahead and shut things down. We are just about out of time. So This is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one.